0: Because she was a woman, her culture demanded that she be partly mutilated. Yet with her mind intact, she escaped a forced marriage and made her way to the Netherlands, where she became a member of Parliament. Now a women's rights leader, she has been called by Time magazine one of the hundred most influential people in the world. But she most enjoys being called simply an American. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell. And this is Watching America. On my life. I'm watching America. On my life. It's panic in America. Oh oh oh. Oh. It's trouble in America. Oh
1: oh oh. Oh. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. <laughs>
0: The music you from Somalia. It is tribal and clan music intended for war.
1: I come from a dysfunctional country. There's a shortage of everything. Food, shelter. What my clan can get, we don't share with the other clans. In fact, we designate the other clan. The enemy, we're hostile to them. So when we go to the waterhole to get water, we try to get as much as possible for ourselves, for those who share our name, who share our bloodline, and we don't leave any for the others. In Mogadishu, Somalia, we had large posters of Marx, Engels, and Lenin. This is a poor African country, for heaven's sake. Then I came to the Netherlands. And I saw this wondrous country and I thought, wow, how did they overcome it? Then I came to this country and it's like, wow, how do you transcend that level of tribalism in such a short period of time? That's the story of America.
0: I am most delighted to welcome to Watching America, somebody I've admired for a long time, Ayan Hersi Ali. She is known to most of us as a Somalian-born uh, Dutch-American feminist, author, and scholar who once served in the Dutch Parliament. She is now a research fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University. Previously, prior to that, she was a fellow at Harvard University's Belfast Centre. As a young girl, she endured many hardships, the least of which was not um, being able to have control over her own person, her own body. In her native Somalia, she was subjected to female genital mutilation And she was also required by her father's insistence to marry her cousin, a rather displeasing idea. And so she fled to the Netherlands Uh, in the interim. She has written many, many books dealing with radical religion from her perspective, in particular Islam, which she is most familiar with. She's also been nominated for a Nobel Prize along the way. And she is completely enthralling and interesting and enchanting. And so it is an honour to have her here at the table in Watching America. Welcome, Ion, to the programme.
1: Alan, thank you very much for having me on and thank you for those kind words.
0: Well, they're they're completely sincere and warranted. Let me just uh, say that you and I have something very much in common. I was born across the water. You were born across the water. In your case, Somalia. (laughs) In my case, the UK. I always say to people that I'm British by birth and proud of it, but I'm American by choice. And so are you. Why is that? Yes.
1: Well, in my case, I think I uh, was attracted to the important thing about America, which is America is not an ethnicity. It's not a religion. um, It's not a tribe. It's not a race. It's an idea. And I think it's the best idea that human beings have come up with up until now. And like you, I get excited about defending that idea when I see threats um, coming at it, either in my, you know, I was born in Somalia and raised a Muslim, and uh, some of the people with whom I share a background have decided, let's attack America and its idea. And when that idea is put into practice, what it has become, and now we have a brand new homegrown ideology that's threatening the idea of America from the inside. If you want me to sum up what I think that idea means, it's life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness.
0: Well stated. Um, it was the 9th of June 2020 at exactly 8.32 p.m. that you tweeted the following what the media also do not tell you is that America is the best place on the planet to be black, female, gay, trans, or what have you. We have our problems and we need to address those. But our society and our systems are far from racist.
1: Yes. Um, why is it elusive to so many Americans? Um, I'm not an expert but I will say to you, what I observe is a development, maybe maybe decadence is setting in, but if you have lived in America, uh, let's say for the last, at least the last 50 years, you will have enjoyed a life of liberty with its ups and downs, uh, great health, uh, life expectancies going up, uh, men and women have never been more equal. I'm married to a white man and I associate with people who have relationships across every imaginable race and social um, status. And so I think maybe, it's very cynical, but sometimes people think what the grass is greener on the other side.
0: One of the words which you uh, are invoking quite often is the word cynical. Uh, you yes. speak about today being a cynical time in relation to a cancel culture, uh, which is the phrase which is used now to encompass uh, basically the, the disinvitation of people from uh, various speaking opportunities to eradicating a person's reputation simply because of point A or point B, which uh, differs from somebody else's point C and D. Mm-hmm. The word cynical is employed a lot. What do, how do you see that manifested in American culture?
1: So the, the best people really, to give you the best answer, uh, the philosopher, Peter Boghossian, and mathematician, James Lindsay, and then the British um, editor-in-chief of this magazine, Ariel, Helen Yes, Fackrose. we've they had have, them all on uh, the show. Yes. So I would say, I would defer to them when it comes to uh, really a structural and well-researched and rigorous way of understanding what this is all about. Again, I come across A lot of people who say they don't believe in cancel culture, they hate it, they despise it, uh, but they're willing to go along with it if they can further their career, make more money, uh, keep their friendships and their network. And that's what I mean by cynical, that you're really, you're doing something to benefit you on an individual or in a sort of narrow interest group kind of thing. But meanwhile, you really are eroding the institutions of liberty, sincerity, trust between individuals and people, just so you can have, you know, your your, your profit of the day, uh, that's cynical.
0: It seems almost now that you can't invoke the phrase ignorant. We have a lot of, which doesn't mean stupid, but uneducated mm-hmm. in Great. the broader sense, people who are taking actions in an egregious way that um, is completely illogical. For instance, the the pulling down of the the statue of Ulysses S. Grant, uh, (laughs) who was certainly uh, a defender of the interests of African Americans. Mm -hmm. Uh, To to what extent do you hold the universities responsible for this complete neglect of uh, giving a well-rounded education to Americans about America?
1: Right. Um, Of course, I hold them responsible. Um, And I want to go back again to the concept of being ignorant. Um, Look, if you are coming from a small village somewhere in Africa or the Amazon, and you haven't been exposed to any kind of formal education, I think we are all very forgiving and very tolerant of that kind of ignorance, of not knowing because there was never an opportunity to know. But if you've paid or your parents or your community has spent well over $70,000 for you to go to school and be educated and you come out this way, then I think uh, this should be met not just with holding universities responsible, but with righteous anger in saying, this is a con job. Uh, we, We fought in this country, the United States of America, for decades to include women and African-Americans and other minorities in getting access to higher education. And when when you then enter the institutions that are supposed to provide you with that higher education, if all they've given you is Uh, activism and activism in some kind of uh, grievances that never end, Uh, you are oppressed and you're oppressed and all you can do is tear down statues, tear down everything, dismantle everything. So I think we should hold them accountable. And I'm understating what I'm saying. The, The kind of anger I feel right now at universities is enormous and I'm not the only one.
0: I was intrigued when I uh, saw you speak regarding uh, your your origins uh, growing up in East Africa and, and also for a while in, in Ethiopia, and you were uh, very much aware of, if you will, tribalism, uh, the idea yes. that you were part of a particular tribe, and it would seem that you were seeing an outgrowth of the same thing, not by lineage and bloodline in this case, but by ideology. How are you encountering this, and what do you think is the antidote?
1: So what I'm seeing is um, this activism now, um, I'll, I'll I'll just give you a little uh, bit of my first encounters with it. So, so when I was in Holland and I started uh, to join public debates and discussions on themes such as integration of immigrants, Islam, women's rights, I would encounter people who would say the requirement for immigrants to assimilate into modern society is eurocentric it is colonialist um, and I think back then we used to dismiss those people as multicultural uh, we used to call them mm-hmm. cultural relativists I used to debate them I used to make my case saying you're actually by using this uh, well-intentioned language. Um, you are actually excluding immigrants and Muslims from modernity and the fruits of modernity. And I never thought they would ever, ever become this big. I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but the former prime minister of the UK, David Cameron and Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany, at some point they came out and they said, multiculturalism doesn't work, it's dead. And I thought that most people felt that way. And if our leaders were saying that, then it was really a question of doing our very best to include and integrate um, immigrants, especially from Muslim countries, into Western society. And now I'm here in America and yes, I'm seeing this This thing has, it's grown, it's metastasized, and they want to put society through this sorting machine where we're not individuals but we are groups and we belong to groups. And these groups, are they can only relate to one another through power and a prism of power. And so you have the oppressor, which is white, heterosexual male, and everyone else is oppressed. And then those who are oppressed, they're also put through some other kind of matrix, which is just, it just defies logic. And it's so absurd. Uh, but these victims then are in constant. They're, they're they're taught constantly to bring down the system that's oppressing them, and so this thing has morphed into an ideology, into a cult, into secular religious fundamentalism of a kind that uh, is determined to bring down our liberal institutions. And, and this is I'm really um, I've, I've I've been calling it tribes. They want us to be tribes. Uh, I can see the tribal logic was growing up in a tribe myself. You you, you, you were a member of your tribe and you thought it was a zero-sum game. Uh, everything was scarce. So what we had, we had to keep and we had to take away from the other tribe. And other tribes felt that way. And I mean, I, I don't need to describe to you what Somalia looks like now or apparently Republic of Congo or Afghanistan, any of those places where tribalism actually is applied from the get-go. And it's weird, it's very strange that Americans seem now to be subscribing to that kind of mentality.
0: Well, the very motto of the nation is out of many, one. And you must wonder, one must wonder, uh, how is this ever going to be attained again? Peter Boghossian, who you've referred to at the outset of the program, um, when I interviewed him, he he said something which really struck me and stayed with me amongst many things, incidentally. But he said, we've lost the appreciation for nuance in argument, mm-hmm. uh, and that is uh, tantamount to me to just basically the the, the true disintegration of intellectual pursuit. Uh, the inability to to differentiate between one facet of an argument and another it would seem to be increasingly today that politics is a type of fashion rather than a logical adherence to a series of conclusions
1: i think because we've neglected teaching and now i blame the adults more than the young people because these young people obviously went to through a long process of socialization they went to preschool They went to elementary and secondary school, and then they go to university. And that is the process. That is the time when you teach young people to be tolerant. And in the at least last two decades, if not three, we've uh, talked or paid lip service to inclusion and diversity and so on. Uh, But we really neglected to teach them about the true meaning of tolerance and the true meaning of freedom, free speech, that former generations fought for and died for. And uh, these new generations are are born into it and they take it for granted and and they're easier to manipulate. Um, We've also become global societies where there's more diversity than ever. And yet the silos of intolerance, Um, I don't know what's going to happen to the millennials and uh, Gen Z types. Social media has, of course, in some ways encouraged this. I'm I'm not opposed to, I'm not the kind of person who denounces the internet. I will not do that. I think it has benefited us in so many different ways, but it has made it, if you are not taught, if you're ignorant of the true meaning of tolerance, I, I think, the internet then provides these corners, these echo chambers, where you can be, you can behave like you're a primitive member of a tribe.
0: One of the things uh, that is clearly discernible is uh, persons speaking for other persons on their behalf when it's not invited nor or, or uh, encouraged. Uh, an example of this that I've seen uh, in the in the academy uh, teaching for three decades is this abandonment of Western culture that, you know, we've got to throw out Western culture. We can't study Western culture. And yet when I have students from Nigeria... Right. They embrace it. They want it. <laughs> they, they want to know about Western culture. It's the very reason they're coming to school in the West. That's why they go to London. That's why they go to Paris. That's why they go to Stanford uh, and, and the Palo Alto. I mean, you, you're surrounded by people from all over the world who principally and intentionally want to come to Palo Alto, to Stanford University or prior to that when you were at Harvard um, yeah. to get a, a Western curriculum. And yet the people who indigenously would you would hope would embrace their own culture reject it.
1: So what you call Western, when you're in Nigeria or in Kenya or in Somalia or a non-Western country, what people here describe as Western, we think of as an appreciation and a protection of the individual, individual freedom and individual human rights. We also think of it as emphasizing our common humanity. Instead of separating us into groups and Mm. into tribes and gender this, that, and the other. And once you emphasize these universal common humanity traits, you then start to see not Stanford and Harvard as what they are today, but what once upon a time they used to be.
0: Yes, well said. Yes.
1: And what they used to be was to empower the individual in his or her pursuit of their happiness, their Mm. economic happiness, the moral happiness. And we also used, these institutions used to be places where people were actually trained not only in enjoying their own liberty, but in letting others live and let live. And that's what we've abandoned. And we've said, these things are now not... Universal there's no more common humanity. It's whiteness. It's the white male that's oppressed. So the idea of working hard, dedicating your time and your effort into a vocation that you love, being a father and taking responsibility for the children that you you bear, these, these are all now called whiteness and it's racism and we must reject it all. And the people who are telling us these things are not telling us once we reject everything and dismantle and destroy, they're not telling us what they're going to replace it with. Mm. Uh, and again, this is my quiet way of expressing my anger is, if you really want what um, Abram Candy, and Robin DiAngelo want, why don't they just go and spend some time in Somalia and in Afghanistan and in Congo? Because what they're seeking is already, it, it's well established. It's romantic primitivism. We've been seeing and hearing this since the time of Rousseau when people reject civilization. Uh, and they, they say now it's Westernism, it's whiteism, it's the white male. It's, it's also very disturbing.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, your host, and I'm utterly delighted to have as my guest today Ayan Hirsi Ali. You know her from multiple works addressing uh, religion, uh, the potential danger and given danger of of radical religion of all sorts. Um, She's most familiar with Islam, but she's written also biographically, uh, autobiographically about her own life. And that leads me to this question. Ayan, there is something innately uh, present in you which gave you the ability uh, in the midst of various social limitations in your culture to see beyond it, to break out. Uh, And I'm saying this before you even went to the Netherlands and served in in parliament. Um, What was that? What was that – dare I even use the word spirit – inside you that (laughs) was willing to persevere – uh, unassuredly, because you weren't assured that everything was going to go uh, clear to a plan or, or the revelations that you would discover would be favorable, but you kept pursuing it. What What is it innately in Ayan that allows you to do that or did allow you to do that?
1: I think I'm just, again, one individual among many. I I don't know if it is <laughs> spirit. I think we, we all have it, honestly. I'm not the only one. Um growing up in Africa and the Middle East, I saw so many girls uh, and even boys speak about whisper. We weren't allowed to speak about it. This is why I'm passionate about free speech, is we weren't allowed to ask questions. So we whispered in corners and we questioned and uh, some of us were lucky enough, uh, like I was, to get the opportunity to read and write. And the more books I read the more that broadened my mind and the more that I would say encouraged my resilience and my hope and optimism that there's something better than this. My mother used to say, and the other fundamentalists who raised me, we were given life by God so that we can suffer. And the more we suffer the better because we will be rewarded in the afterlife. And I used to question this along with some of my age mates. When is this afterlife going to start? Life is too painful.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: And and here's and this is then again why I go back to the reading and the writing and Western influences is um, when you read Charles Dickens in Nairobi or in Kampala for that matter, you think, my God, yeah. It, there is a possibility life could be different. And I, I would stop reading Dickens, pitting the characters he depicts more than my own life, and I'd pick up Nancy Drew. And I would think, wow, so that there's a place on earth where that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I would read, you know, we would read Secret Sevens and Famous yes. Fives. There, there was no J.K. Rowling at, the, at that <laughs> time. But the, the, this is again. I don't know. You, you you think that it's something that's unique to me, or some kind of spirit. But it really is that as human beings, we have the capacity to know, to be curious, and then to explore. And and then your circumstances sometimes give you the courage to say, well, I know, uh, I know this devil, but I, I'm going to, I'm willing to see something else, and I'm willing to take the risk. And Western societies have given us, and you can see the millions of people from Africa, the Middle East, and everywhere who want to come to America and who want to come to Europe, they're willing to take a risk to find something better. All the more disheartening, all the more saddening than when Americans and Europeans say that their societies are evil, racist, colonialists, and all this BS that we're hearing these days.
0: I noted, Ion, that you use the term whispers, uh, that you would only whisper. We've entered yeah. into a new age of whispering in the United States. Um, I see yeah. it manifested among students. Uh, students are loathe to express any opinion now. It's it's like pulling teeth as as the expression goes. <laughs> I see you yeah. at the University of Boulder in Colorado and you asked the students, are there any questions you're afraid to ask? A very legitimate right. question and it was quite alarming. Uh, I couldn't see the audience in, in its entirety. But uh, there, there did seem to be some hesitation. I have students who are afraid to express an opinion. And I say, well, why are you afraid to express an opinion? Well, I might offend somebody. And then I say to <laughs> them, could you please explain to me where in the U.S. Constitution it guarantees you won't be offended? And and, and another manifestation, uh, I, I will ask deliberately provocative questions in, in a persuasive speech class uh, I've taught in argumentation. And I'll just to, to just get a, a general read of the class, I'll say – Is it all right for somebody to believe that their religion is better than others? Almost universally, I get the response, no, no, it's not right. <laughs> and I say, this is completely ludicrous. You can't say that, Dr. Campbell. Why can't I? Because that's not right. And I and I say, well, is is it all right to believe that one vehicle you own is better than another vehicle and that's why you've chosen it? I would fully expect a Muslim to say that he believes or she believes that Islam is the best religion. Otherwise, why are they Islamic? All the same for that matter for a Buddhist uh, or for a, a Hindu or for a Christian. Um, so that it's not permitted even for the individual to have um, mm-hmm. an impassioned view of any sort, religious or even secular.
1: And this is a free society with a constitution like ours and a First Amendment. Um, will you permit me to read? Because I think the person who saw this coming is Alexis de Tocqueville way yes. back yes. in time. Will you permit me to read a quote welcomed. from him?
0: Yes, by all means, well, please do. Of,
1: yeah, what could happen to America? Uh, so the fill says this, after having thus taken each individual one by one into its powerful hands and having moulded him as it pleases, the sovereign power extends its arms over the entire society. It covers the surface of society with a network of small, complicated, minute, and uniform rules, which the most original minds and the most vigorous souls cannot break through to go beyond the crowd. It does not break wills, but it softens them, bends them, and directs them. It rarely forces action, but it constantly opposes your acting. It does not destroy. It prevents birth. It does not tyrannize. It hinders, it represses, it enervates, it extinguishes, it stupefies, and finally, it reduces each nation to being nothing more than a flock of timid and industrious animals, of which the government is the shepherd. When you read this, you see that the people who are scared to uh, whispering in corners—it's it, it, almost like uh, I've been taught—you know, governments act top-down. They take control of power and they force you to do things. What we're witnessing in America, and maybe to a lesser degree in the UK is, we're having hordes and hordes of people coming from the university saying, we want to give power to governments and institutions. And and then you, you see this phenomenon that the Tocqueville was also describing back then as in liberal societies, beware, this is what could happen. Um,
0: Continue, yes, by all means.
1: I want to give another little quote. This is one line only. He goes on to say, Tocqueville goes on to say, I have always believed that this sort of servitude, regulated, mild, and peaceful, of which I have just done the portrait, could be combined better than we imagine with some of the external forms of liberty, and that it would not be impossible for it to be established in the very shadow of the sovereignty of the people. So people in America now, and I'm very, I really think this is on on the left side of the aisle, are willing to give the government and institutions of power to hand their freedoms over. For what? For little things so you can keep your career and you know, you can be invited to our party. And that's what the whispering is all about. Path of
0: resistance. Exactly. One of the curious things that, I mean, you and I have a, a this show is called Watching America. And the premise is, is that obviously I was born abroad. So I, I I have this love for this country. I mean, an, an unapologetically love for this country, although I am worried, increasingly worried as you are. Um, one of the things about the uh, American temperament, which has always struck me as curious, is that on one level, at least it used to be true, that this was one of the most patriotic nations on the face of the earth. I love America, you know, and all of that, and flags and, and Fourth of July fireworks <laughs> and what have you. And at the same time, there's this evident deep distrust for their own government. Um, I, I've, I've not seen that in Europe uh, uh, you know, first of all, most Europeans don't tend to be, at least in the UK, there's a kind of embarrassment about being too patriotic. You know, yes, people come out for the Queen's Jubilee, but uh, in general, it's 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 kind of quiet. Um, mm-hmm. Where in America, it's very effusive and expressive and, and dramatic. And yet at the same time. Uh, a a really ardent distrust of of government and now though i'm yeah. seeing an embracing of government so right. the whole shift of the american psyche is is now you know going if you want to say you know uh from from starboard <laughs> you know it's just leaning yeah. in the other direction yeah. so quickly so fast that I, I i don't know how to interpret it And again, this is why I went
1: back to the greatest watcher of America, uh, the Tocqueville. I think being suspicious of government is a healthy attitude. And that's probably what made Americans different. Uh, America is an exceptional country, but Americans were also different. Both Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals, to a certain degree were, I just want the government to leave me alone, to do my own thing. Uh, yes maintain law and order and provide for the for the you know those who can't provide for themselves but otherwise please leave us alone and now we are seeing more and more activism for government power for authoritarianism it's i i think the right the extreme right the far right is well studied and well understood and of course we have to fear them and we have to keep uh, keep them at bay, but I think that the stealth with which the Democratic Party in particular and more broadly the left has been infiltrated by these terrible ideas, I know we we keep talking about things like cancel culture, but that they have now adopted an an ideology uh, which is moving fast forward, too fast. Well, we are, I listened to uh, the acceptance speech of uh, Kamala Harris, and a few words struck me. I'm paraphrasing, but she said, we will take care of you. We will do this for you. We will do that for you. And I thought, oh, God, no. We don't want government to do that for us. We do that for ourselves. We just want government to leave us alone. What we want government to do is to stop the rioting, stop polluting, stop the disorder, and then leave us alone. And this is what America used to be. And now it's, it's alarming, actually.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, your host, and I am thrilled to have Ayan Hersey Ali uh, with us this day. It is a great honor. One of the things I've heard you say, that you came from a dysfunctional family. You came yes. from a dysfunctional community and you came from a dysfunctional country. And then tied to that, you said that part of the dysfunction was found in uh, certainly uh, uh, an idealized concept uh, of posters of Marx, Engels, and Lenin. Um, <laughs> and now we seem in certain circles to be uh, reinstating those names, uh, if not by you know, direct name, at least the ideology associated with them. Is this incredibly puzzling to you?
1: It's puzzling. But then the older I grow, the more mature I become, the more I see, okay, so um, I used to be friends with the late Roger Sandal from Australia, and he used to call it, I think he called it uh, romantic primitivism. So uh, human beings have always had this tendency to think that there's some kind of perfect utopian reality, either it was in the past or it lies ahead. And uh, what I find puzzling, to be honest with you, is After what we've seen in the Soviet Union, after what we've seen in Cambodia and in China, and what we are seeing in Venezuela, what is puzzling to me is why is it that we still have in America the lingering idea that applied communism or applied socialism is going to bring us some kind of utopian reality?
0: Well, the argument is, of course, it's not been done right before. (laughs) I know. <laughs> oh, yeah. We all get it yeah. right one time. <laughs> That's basically yeah. how it's, it's being introduced to people. Let me ask you about you getting older and mature, if I may. And I don't want to be <laughs> indelicate. Uh, we're told that ladies don't like to discuss their age, but at the time, <laughs> at the time, Infidel came out, which uh, was your your breakthrough major publication. Um, you were thirty seven, and now yeah. you're in the regions of fifty. And so that is a distance of 13 years, but a lot can happen in 13 years. How has Iron Hersey Ali changed in those 13 years?
1: So I'm 50 now, exactly. November I'll be 51. Um, I think I probably belong to one of the few individuals who would say, I love aging. I do too. Yeah, I love getting older. I'm less fiery. Um, I'm more tolerant. Um, I've come to appreciate life on an everyday basis way more. Instead of obsessing about what is to happen in the future, I'm living in the moment. Um, I'm, a, I, I'm so glad I'm an older mother because I'm so much more patient with them, with the children. I have a two year old and an eight year old. I'm a better wife. Um, I just. I I love being older and more mature. I've also come to see, remember my work, my professional uh, work is really trying to understand the ideology of radical Islam, why young people get into it, what they get out of it. I've, I'm not saying I'm understanding of it, but I, I now think, God, I know where they're coming from and why you wouldn't give some of these, if you're a young man, young Muslim man, um, you wouldn't want to give up these privileges and while you're heartling toward it, I'm more forgiving. Mm. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I just want to say also more wary. I, I used to say when I was fighting radical Islam, look, today, the ideology of 9-11 is the ideology we are fighting. How does a young man decide to get in a truck and run over people? What, what's happening? In that mind, and then I would say one day that will pass, and we'll have something else that will threaten uh, human civilization. I didn't realize it was going to get it would happen so fast, and that it would actually be homegrown—that it would come out of our own universities and our own culture and our own. I don't so I don't know. Uh, older usually means wiser, and so maybe that's my African side.
0: Well. One of the things that I think comes with, with certainly aging is, you know, it's a, it's a given is is certainly uh, uh, experience. But there's also an ability to, if one truly matures, not just in chronology, as far as numbers behind your, your date of birth. But if you truly mature, you begin to look for and seek and some people get this very early on in life, the genuine humanity, even in those who oppose your opinion. And that's what's so, uh, there's a starvation for that right now. We, We don't have that. We have an inability on the parts of so many people to look beyond the if you will, the totem pole that people cling to or their particular beliefs and to say, well, there must be some reason behind it, as you've just stated, you know, even for, for the radical, there's a reason that they're, that they're thinking the way they are. Instead of just objectifying the person as the enemy, it is important to say, okay, what is the common human denominator, the humanity that I can recognize in that person? Because that's step one yes. to potential dialogue and understanding.
1: It's romanticism. I think as humans, we have to realize we are not just, and this is again what age has done for me. Why are we not just rational beings? Mm. Why can we just not be reasonable? And it's that we're not rational beings. In fact, probably we're more romantic uh, and irrational uh, than we want to let in. And again, this is if you want to understand what's happening in America, in the UK, in Europe, uh, people. Are less inspired, and incentivized, and invigorated by reason. They love romance. They, they, this is one thing, and this is why I think open societies have to remain forever vigilant. Why did we invent religions? Mm. Why did we, why did we invent stories and movies? And as human beings, we're attracted to this kind of. Uh, fiction of a, of a fact, and, and just sitting there and droning out the facts, it's not going to do it for us.
0: Ayan, you are a person who questioned your own faith. Uh, I'm just right. curious, uh, I am very much a deist. I don't expect anyone to subscribe to my particular viewpoint. Um, I love Peter Boghossian, uh who is an ardent atheist. In fact, most of the people I have on this show who I really like, I mean, in, in passionately like, tend to be atheists. I don't know. It's an ongoing joke around this place. Um, yeah. But I'm a deist. Where have you settled, at least um, conceptually, with the idea of, if you will, um, a divine creator? Uh, or do you reject that idea? Do you, do you believe we would just matter? Or do you think there is some, to use Ralph Waldo Emerson's concept, an oversoul or some entity, a deity that looks down on this blue marble?
1: I've become softer. Um, I was a hardcore atheist and I thought people who believed in God, who are deists, were just plain stupid. Mm -hmm. I've become, again, with age and with maturity, much softer. And um, I've also come to discriminate between uh, faiths, between religions. Um, I've come to accept that uh, believing in God is part of the human condition. And so if we're going to believe in God, then we're going to have a discrimination between gods, and the God you believe in if that God says, empathize and be compassionate and look after each other, mm. um, then I I find that way more attractive than say the God that uh, of my childhood, which was you know converts others, impose your beliefs, and there's only one truth, and if people reject that truth, shun them, ostracize them, and kill them. I've also come to see that you don't need to believe in a God mm-hmm. to be authoritarian and, and a fundamentalist and a fanatic. It, what we're seeing now with cancel culture and identity politics, it, it's a faith, isn't it? Yes. It's, it's, it's yes. a credo. And a and yes. Yeah, exactly. If you don't believe what they believe, you're out. You're canceled. And it's just a matter of time before they start getting violent, really. So that's where I am at now. It's... Um, uh, and it's just like this is the honest truth I, i'm not saying i sit there and believe mm. uh, you know I'm, <laughs> i haven't converted to any faith
0: no no of course um, yes i really appreciate you kanda um i'll just broach one other uh, question related to this and this is more self concept um I, I asked you you know in in the general sense i said what gave you the spirit to to pursue knowledge and what have you when mm-hmm. it comes to the a matter of your essence do you see yourself more as mind or spirit?
1: Both. Mind and spirit. And don't forget the body. Yes. We also exercise three or four times a week.
0: <laughs> that's you. That's not me. I pass on that one. That's, out, that's outside my religion. <laughs> Before we go, Ion, we have spoken about council culture um, briefly, uh, perhaps not to the extent that you had anticipated. And I'd like to make amends for that. In very practical ways, Ion, how have you experienced it? Uh, in your own life?
1: I've experienced it in the following ways. I'd be curious about what is transgender. You know where I come from. I don't know what transgender is, Mm. Um, but I'm just driven by curiosity. There's always something new that you can learn. And I would then try and educate myself on what are we talking about here? Um, we would then encounter some of the problems that I think J.K. Rowling is trying to address, uh, but it's been better addressed by a woman called uh, Abigail Schreier, Mm -hmm. who says um, there are teenagers, you know, children really, who are being forced into situations. And I've been a teenage girl. It's terrible. It's a terrible experience. Um, If you feel peer pressure to change your gender... You can then now go hormone, undergo hormone treatment, and have your boobs amputated. These things are irreversible. So, if at the age of 16 or 17, just because you want to belong to the squad, you do that. But later on, when you're older, you think, "God, I'm really, I'm really, really sorry, and I want to have this undone." These are very complicated subjects. You want to hold the adults accountable who have performed these horrors, but you can't because then these people come and pile up on you and everything is shut up and shut down and the children suffer. And it, this very much reminds me of female genital mutilation. It's the exact same thing if you're living in any of the countries where female genital mutilation is prevalent, you question it, they just pile on you, they shut it up and it goes on.
0: May I ask you a, a, a question in relation to that? hmm Um, Because this was perpetrated against you uh, uh, and you've experienced this, how did you deal with the subsequent anger? Uh,
1: uh, Real healing comes from turning the uh, going from uh, negative anger to positive anger. And negative anger is you hate and you just want to punish the people who punished you. and You want to Um, cause pain to the people who caused you pain. Positive Mm. anger is to say, I'm not going to let this happen to other children. I'm not going to let this happen to other women. I'm going to speak out. Again, I, I don't think my politics is in sync with J.K. Rowling's, but I admire what she's doing to, she's expressing what i call positive anger which is saying she's using her money and her celebrity to say this is a violation of the rights of the child it's a human rights violation violation against the rights of women i'm going to speak out against it i'm going to turn that's positive anger that's that's what i where I, what it has done to me it has done for me it's also what i try to Propagate is to say, don't live in resentment and in bitterness and you know, uh, you've come out of it, I've survived, fine. There are those who are not surviving, but let's campaign to stop it, knowing it's going to take forever. But again, if you ask me in practical ways, what is cancel culture doing to us? We're having these topics, these issues of uh, the 21st century climate, uh, this, uh, all the issues, the social justice issues, the disparities, the racial disparities. You know what? I've been a victim of racism. I've lived in Saudi Arabia. I've been called a monkey, a slave. Um, we've been really, really treated badly by the Saudis. My anger then, that my ne- negative anger would be, why don't we avenge, take revenge? Um, positive anger is, why don't we move on and teach them to, to fight racism, but you can't fight racism if in America, as Ibram Kennedy does and D'Angelo, if they say everything is racist. We used to have a, a proper definition for it, so then we knew what we were fighting, but now we don't know what we're fighting because it's in everything.
0: Mm. A, I, and that's, I think you've said elsewhere, you said if, if everything is racism, uh, then there is no such thing truly as a distinguished racist.
1: And then you can't fight it. Yes. You see, yes. and you can't fight. You can't fight sexism. You can't fight any of these um, terrible things if everything is it. You know, you can't if you have no objective truth. If you can't define and you can't agree on what it is that you're fighting, then you can't fight it.
0: Before we leave, one was the most dramatic example that you can think of when cancel culture frightened you or has frightened you the most.
1: On an intimate level, I would say when my husband was subjected to just by a bunch of students, he was called a racist and um, he, he, he thought, you know, we, he thought he was ruined. And you don't understand cancel culture until it comes for you and your family. Hmm. What's happening to other people from afar you think I'm it's an opinion. I'm I'm going to express that opinion. But when you see the pain and it is up, close and personal, that's when you start to stand up and think, wait a minute, what is this? What is this thing and why? I never call it council culture. I told you we called it multiculturalism and moral relativism and we called it all of these things. But when it comes for you and it comes to your family, that's when you start to think, wait a second, I need to know, I need to understand what's going on. The more Americans who get acquainted with cancel culture and its origins, the more we will reject it.
0: Finally, Ayan Hirsi Ali, if you were to be given 30 seconds and everyone in the entire world would hear what you were going to say and the majority would abide by it, mm-hmm. what would you say in 30 30 seconds
1: the philosophy of liberalism the values the norms the customs that liberalism classical liberalism has given birth to is superior to identity politics to islam to any other kind of orthodoxy to totalitarianism and we just really need to fight for it
0: Clarification, just for persons in our audience, we always have younger people joining us all the time. Could you define what classical liberalism is?
1: It's the idea that an individual is free, that as human individuals, we're all free and we're united by that common humanity, that we build institutions that protect those freedoms. And human equality, regardless of your gender, your class, whatever. And because I know young people all have this and they probably don't know, but I would say to young people, if you're ever in doubt, then please travel. And if universities want to redeem themselves, we might have to put a fund up somewhere where you can go and live in a place where people are not free just so you can experience it and come back.
0: Ayin Hursi Ali, we spoke earlier about spirit and mind, and I have to tell you how much joy you've given me because of your spirit. I love your spirit and I love your mind. And I am so grateful for you having spent time with us and watching America. Is there anything you want to say that you haven't said?
1: I, I want to say, Alan, thank you very, very much. Thank you for doing this, and I think we probably have to do A lot of this uh, to reclaim the institutions that are eroding right now. That's it.
0: God bless you. Take care. Thank you so much. God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. I'm free. Our producer, Paul Bebo. I'm free. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. And of reality. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for your kind and considerate contributions that make this show possible. Until next time, take care and blessings.
1: Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.